All right, well, oops, man. Yeah, well, beautiful singing. I, I do love that song, and so I'm glad that's one of them that uh, we sing here uh, often at Red Village. So I've not met you. My name is Aaron, and I'm a preaching pastor here, and uh, glad that you're with us um, uh, this morning. So if you have a Bible with you, if you'd open up to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 20. Today our text study will be verses 7 through 10. And as you turn in there, I also heard uh, really good uh, things from the Women's Conference, and so I was really happy that it turned out as well as, as it did. And um, I know not everyone was able to go, but it seemed like a large number of the women of the church were able to make it. And so I was just um, really happy you know, just to hear uh, it's just such a good report uh, from, from this weekend. Okay, so as mentioned, Revelation 20, 7 through 10 is the text, so let me read it for us here, and then I'll pray. Ask for God's blessing on this time, and then we will get to work. So in verse 7 says this, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from a prison. And he'll come out to see the nations that are all, forms of the cur- all four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophets were, and they'll be tormented day and night, forever and ever. It's God's word for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for gathering us together to not just sing songs, to not just enjoy fellowship, not just pray. You gather us together to hear from your word. And so, Lord, I pray that you bless the preaching of your word. Lord, please keep me from error. And Lord, where there is error in my words, I pray that they would escape the thoughts of these good folks here. I pray whatever truth is there, that it would rule and reign in our hearts in ways that we would trust in Jesus more. Jesus, let me pray. Amen. So one word to look just as referred to like the modern world or the modern era, uh, maybe a time period from like 1500 or so to present day. So there have been over, well over, a hundred major wars, with a major war being defined as a loss of at minimal 25,000 lives in the conflict. And in those hundred plus major wars, there are plenty with death tolls well into the hundreds of thousands, you know, some even death tolls into the millions. And depending on how you might mark the beginning and the end of all these different major wars, there's really just like a handful of years in the modern world where a major war was not taking place. So we really can't tell the story of the modern world, the modern era, without talking about war, about battles, about ongoing conflict. And we know it's not like the reality of war is just part of the modern world that we live in. All of human history is filled with war. To the point that we can't tell the story of human history without talking about war. We know this. War fills the timeline of the history books. This morning as we gather together, as Red Village Church, we do so to talk about war. In fact, this morning we're here to talk about the greatest of all wars. A war that everyone will be involved in, on one side or the other. This morning we're here to talk about the last war. The one final battle that will bring this present life to an end. Because this war this greatest of all battles, at its conclusion, will finally bring about peace to the earth. As this last war, this last battle, will usher in a new era, an era like none other, 
as this last battle brings in the comings of the new heavens and the new earth, where war will never happen again, where for the rest of history, war, battles, conflict, they'll be absent. But for the rest of human history, only peace and joy will be found that will never end. Now, before we get to our text in this last great war, let me catch this up where we've been the last few weeks in our study um, of Revelation. Uh, we started a few weeks back in chapter 19. So in chapter 19, as you remember, the start of that chapter, you read about a war or battle, a war between God and Babylon, who in Revelation, Babylon is presented as a woman, who is symbolic for things like sexual immorality, greed, uh, all forms of hedonism, which are things that have been at war with God since sin entered into the world in Genesis 3. In that passage at the start of Revelation 19, you may remember how we read how heaven rejoiced as the Lord defeated Babylon, where heaven gave out a collective hallelujah because Babylon was being judged, held accountable for her actions. Then the text in Revelation 19, after that battle, after the judgment falling on Babylon, we met a different woman, the bride of Christ, who is symbolic for all of God's people of all time. And in chapter 19, as we looked at the bride of Christ, we got to see a very different reality for her, one that stood in sharp contrast to the reality of Babylon. In that, for the bride of Christ, she is welcomed as a guest of honor into an incredible party, an incredible feast, the text referred to as the marriage supper of the Lamb, where Jesus Christ, who is the great Lamb of God, proves also to be the great kind and generous host who throws a party for his bride, who he honors and loves for all eternity. Then, after that, if you may remember the end of chapter 19, we're back at another battle scene. We read about Jesus, who not only is the great Lamb of God, not only is the great, kind, and generous host, but at the end of chapter 19, Jesus also is the great and glorious warrior, a warrior who rides in on a white horse. White horses symbolize his victory, where in chapter 19, the end of it, the glorious warrior Jesus Christ and his army would defeat and destroy the army of a character referred to as the beast, which is a character who is either symbolic to, to represent a specific individual, or at least to me, most likely the beast is a character uh, meant to symbolize some type of like worldview or religion, a worldview or religion that was so effective that through the help of the beast's top lieutenant, his false prophet, the beast was able to get many to worship him by placing his mark on them. Over at the end of the scene, the end of chapter 19, even though the beast was powerful, even though his prophet was effective in his deception, they proved to be no match for the glorious Christ on the white horse. Because in the war, the glorious warrior Christ decimated the beast and his army. And Christ decimated him in such a fashion that the birds of the air were called over to eat the flesh of the beast dead army. While at the same time, Christ then took and threw the beast and his prophet into an eternal lake of fire as a just sentence for their war crimes, for how they deceived people into giving false worship to the beast, rather than giving to worship to God, who alone is worthy of worship. Okay, so as you remember, that's where we were in chapter 19. And last week, we got to chapter 20, and we came to one of the most difficult passages in the scriptures to know how to best read and interpret a passage that referred to a thousand-year reign of Christ, which some, th some think is like a literal thousand years, 
While most others think it's more of like symbolic, a symbolic thousand years meant to symbolize a long length of time, which is what I tend to agree with. In addition, as mentioned last week, the literal symbolic nature of the thousand year reign is not the only thing debated in church history, only thing that's difficult maybe to interpret and understand. But the bigger debate in church history is the timing on when this reign of Christ starts. For some in church history, who label themselves either as like amillennial or postmillennial. If you're not familiar with those terms, let me invite you to stick around after church. Uh, remember, uh, Uncle West will be downstairs, and he's leading a study uh, today that's going to have like, a video series that's going to, over the course of several weeks, going to detail these different viewpoints as well as help give further definition to these topics. So for the amillennial, postmillennial, in different ways, they believe the thousand-year reign has already started. With the amillennial believing this is like a symbolic reign, where Christ is now ruling and reigning in hearts. Where in the postmillennial, they hold symbolic reign of a thousand years as a bit of an unfolding physical reign on the earth, where over time, more and more will come to faith in Jesus Christ, which will bring with it more levels of joy and peace to the physical earth. Because that's some, how they would interpret the thousand-year reign. Others, myself included, believe this thousand-year reign is actually not yet started. But this is something that is still yet to come. And for those who hold to this understanding, we refer to ourselves as premillennial, which myself specifically fall into a camp referred to a historic premillennial, which is similar but different from dispensational premillennial. So again, these uh, terms are foreign to you. Just join Uncle West at the end of the service down in the basement. Okay? So what we worked through last week in the text with the historic premillennial understanding of the passage is that Christ will return. And as he returns, you have one of his angels throw Satan into a bottomless pit, so that Christ will rule on the earth with his people, who he physically raises from the dead in the first resurrection, where Christ will rule and reign on the earth with his people for a symbolic thousand years, where the people will live in peace, where in this thousand-year reign, there will be no wars for an extended period of time, that is, until Satan is released from his prison cell, for one last battle, one last war to take place, which is our text today where we read the battle, the war, to end all wars. Where at the end of this thousand-year reign, the Lord Jesus Christ will finally, fully defeat all of his enemies, including the enemy of death, as he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth, which is mentioned, where war will be no more, where there will be only peace and joy forever and ever. Okay, so that is a bit of an introduction where we were. If you please look back with me in our text today, starting in verse 7. As you look back there, please just keep your Bible open. We're just going to work through verse by verse. And as you're looking back there, let me mention something that I mentioned last week. That for those who see the thousand-year reign as having already started, they would see the events recorded at the end of chapter 19, you know, Christ riding on the white horse, and this last great battle in our text today, they would see those as being as the same event. Where the author of Revelation, John, was giving details on the last battle from one vantage point, recorded in chapter 19, and then from a different vantage point here in chapter 20. And there are many great Christians, many great theologians who come to this conclusion. But as mentioned last week, humbly, I'm in a camp that sees the text laid out differently, where I see chapter 19 and 20 details two separate events, two different battles, where there's a great battle in chapter 19 of Christ against the beast and his prophet. But now there is a war, a battle, to end all battles in chapter 20, but this time against Satan. Verse 7 of our passage, where we read that after the thousand years ended, Satan will be released from his prison. 
which also takes us back to our passage last week, where it's mentioned, we read in verse 1, of an angel coming down from heaven with an authoritative key by which the angel will open up a bottomless pit where the angel then sees Satan, who in the previous passage we referred to as the dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil. And as the devil was seized by this angel, he's thrown into a pit where the door was sealed shut behind him, where for a thousand years Satan would sit in the pit before being released for a little while. So for us in our text today, this is now taking place in verse 7 of the passage. Satan is being released one last time for a little while. There's one last attempt to overthrow the goodness of God. Verse 8. We see that as Satan is released, he is released to come deceive the nations that are from all four corners of the earth, from Gog and Magog, to gather them together for battle. Okay, now just a few things here. First, just the four corners of the earth. I think that's meant to help us see that this war to end out war, all wars, this will involve everyone. This is truly a world war here. And because this war involves everyone, so, so one is actually not allowed to claim neutrality here. Okay, there, there's no spiritual, like, Switzerland. Everyone is required to pick a side, including all of us here today. We, we have to pick our side. Second, Gog, Magog. This is a reference to the Old Testament book, um, Ezekiel, that also details one last great battle. You see that in chapter 38 and 39 of Ezekiel. Now, the scriptures, the first time we actually come across these names, Gog and Magog, they actually are individuals. So Magog is a descendant of Noah. So his name came up in the genealogy in Genesis. Gog is listed in the genealogy of Reuben, one of the sons of Jacob. Uh, his name comes up in genealogy in 1 Chronicles 5. But outside of that, we don't know anything about these individuals. And really, even the timeline of these individuals, they're, they're from different eras. So, so they're not linked together in life as contemporaries. So, so it is a bit interesting and a little confusing on how they're now linked together here. But, but they are. In addition, here in Revelation, as well as in Ezekiel, it's not really certain who Gog and Magog might represent. Although in Ezekiel, Gog seems to refer to a king. Magog as an evil nation, a nation who wars against God's people, Israel. Where in that passage, the Lord himself enters into the battle to destroy Gog and Magog, to defend his people. Now for us, I think all we can safely say is that Gog and Magog in this passage here, they represent evil. They represent that which wars against the goodness of God. They are enemies trying to destroy God's people once and for all. In the text, as Satan is released to deceive the nations of the earth, we see that he is gathering his followers to battle, including those under the influence of Gog and Magog, who seem to be like maybe leading the way. And this army that Satan is able to bring together is one that is so great, our text tells us it is like the sand of the sea. Okay, now here, at least for me, this is where it gets a little confusing on like who makes up this great number. And by the way, this is one of the reasons I can feel a little unsettled even in my historic premillennial camp. Like, where did Satan get this huge army that he could so quickly deceive during this thousand-year reign of Christ? So some argue that this huge army is made up of demons, perhaps trapped with Satan in the abyss. It's really possible. Others argue it's maybe a combination of demons along with all people of all time who did not trust in Christ. 
the people who rejected God, rejected Christ and the gospel of forgiveness. Right? As mentioned, in this battle, everyone has to choose a side. So those who reject Christ in his life, Scripture teaches in the end, they're actually choosing to fight in Satan's army. As well, this is confusing me. This does make at least some sense in my mind. That this huge army here of Satan is made up of all individuals of all time who have rejected Christ. Meaning this massive army is made up of those who are not part of the first resurrection that our pastors talked about last week. Remember that? How in the first resurrection, all those who had faith in Christ will be physically resurrected to rule and reign with Christ for the thousand-year reign. But at the end of the reign, when Satan is released, it appears those who rejected Christ will then be resurrected to join Satan for this last great war. This is the second resurrection, which verse 6 of our text last week referenced. Now to say it again, this does feel a bit odd to me, but best I can tell, this is what's happening here in verse 8. Satan, maybe his demons, and all in this life who have rejected Christ, all come together for one last war. Keep going. As Satan rallies this massive army for this last great war, in verse 9, we read that this army marched over the broad plain of the earth. And as they marched, we see that they did so in ways they're able to come and surround the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Okay, now a few things here. First, just notice that Satan and his army, they want this war. They're not like passively being thrust into battle here. You know, where they're maybe like kind of minding their own business, you know, kind of living in Magog, doing life together. And then, like, out of nowhere, a war is thrust upon them. Which, by the way, I know for some in our congregation, you know that reality far too well, far too personally, how devastating that is. You know, there's some here, almost two years ago, that was thrust upon you, war. That's not Satan and his army in this passage. They want this. They want this battle. They march a great distance for this war to take place. And this really is true of all the different battles of Revelation are presented. Forces of evil that war against God, this is what they want. They hate Christ. They hate his people to the point that they're actively engaging in battle where they're seeking to eliminate them. It's like in the text, the saints, these are those who belong to the army of Christ. These are the people who have put their faith in him. These are the ones who Christ resurrected at the start of his reign, the first resurrection. Third, the beloved city that the saints were camped in. This seems to be presented in the text as Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is actually going to come up again in chapter 21 when we read about the new Jerusalem that is to come. So for me, this beloved city seems to be referencing Jerusalem. But I think it's actually given more like symbolic terms. So in scriptures, Jerusalem presented as being like the holy city which I think is actually the bigger point our text is making, that God's people, they're dwelling together in holiness. So maybe not like literally Jerusalem, possibly. Although as I say that, I do want you to know, I, I do think this is a physical dwelling place where God's people were encamped together. So in both the thousand-year reign and the new heavens and new earth, that we're going to get to in chapter 21, Jerusalem, new Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth, so in the scriptures, in Revelation, they're presented as like physical places where God's people will physically dwell. In the Gospels, Jesus talked about going ahead of his people to make a physical place for his people 
where there'll be like physical rooms for them to live in. Now, we're going to talk about this more once we get to chapter 21 and chapter 22. But in the scriptures, eternal life, what is to come? So it's not presented as some type of like out-of-body experience. It's not presented as like where our souls are kind of just like floating around in the clouds in some type of like out-of-body euphoria. Rather, scripture teaches that God created us physical body and soul. And the eternal life that is to come, that's what we'll be. Physical body and soul. Where our physical bodies will dwell in physical places, even in eternal life. By the way, a little side note to this here. This is one of the reasons why we wholeheartedly reject any worldview that is almost attempting to like separate body and soul. Or any teaching that's promoting like emptying our minds from our bodies. Friends, that's not biblical. In fact, that's like anti-biblical. In eternal life, we'll be physical body, physical soul, or not physical soul, but physical body and soul. Okay, back to our text. As Satan and his massive army arrive at the beloved city, we see that they're able to surround the beloved city. They're able to like fully pin God's saints in, which seems to imply that inevitably Satan and his massive army is going to overthrow the city and defeat God's people. It's presented almost like a matter of time before Satan and his army would come out as decisive victors of this last great war. However, in our text, we see that's not the reality of how this is going to end here. In the text, we see that God would not allow for his people to be overcome. We see in the text that God will actually rain down fire from heaven on top of Satan and his army. It will rain down in ways that the enemies of God will be consumed, where the enemies of God will be fully defeated. And this fire from heaven here, this is actually something that came up in the book of Revelation prior, chapter 11. So we read, or you can read in chapter 11, where there's opponents of like two of God's witnesses. And these opponents sought to consume the witnesses of God, only for God to deliver his witnesses with fire from heaven. And that fire in heaven, from heaven in Revelation 11, and now again in chapter 20, I think are meant to take our minds back to two different Old Testament passages. So first there's a story of the prophet Elijah. So in 2 Kings 1, so there's an evil king who sent a series of captains and officers to surround and capture Elijah. But as the captains and the officers came, God himself protected Elijah by raining fire from heaven to consume the enemies. The other place in the Old Testament is actually back to Ezekiel 38, 39. Gog and Magog. Likewise, in Ezekiel, God's judgment came to defend his people through fire. Fire consumed the enemies that were seeking to destroy God's people. For us, I think the main emphasis here is that God himself personally protected his saints. Where God himself personally entered into this great final battle meaning God in his great love, mercy, and grace that he has for those that he calls his own, he didn't just like leave his people. He didn't forsake his people. As they were surrounded, God didn't sit, like passively sit back to perhaps see how well his people could fight the battle on his own. No. In this passage, God actively got involved God, the great King of kings, the Lord of lords, enlisted himself into the army to put himself on the front line 
where he stepped into the fight, knowing that without his intervention, indeed, his people would have been consumed. In the scene, in his grace, in his love, and his kindness, God fought where his people could not fight, as God himself decisively brought victory to save his people. And by the way, this is also one of the great ongoing themes of the book of Revelation. This book actually kind of circles around this like over and over again, whom we already looked at in the battles in chapter 19, and ultimately this end battle today. Friends, God fights for his people. No doubt, Revelation continues to trigger on this truth that God himself will fight, God himself will bring victory for his people as a means to encourage, comfort us, especially at the times where we feel like opposing forces are like consuming us, which perhaps is actually some of us here today. When we walked in this morning feeling like surrounded by enemies, whether the enemy of sin, of discouragement, maybe bodily ailment, fear, anxiety, where you're feeling almost like consumed by these things. Friend, if that's you, let this last great war in Revelation 20, let it encourage you, let it comfort you, let it give you hope. In the end, God will defeat all of his enemies. He destroys any and all things that war against his people. So again, Revelation tells us this over and over again. Why? So we don't miss it. Friends, we must see this great truth. Let me say it again. God fights for his people. And he will continue to fight for his people all the way until this last great war. I keep saying it. God will be so decisive in this last great war that this last great war, this last great battle... In the end, he'll be so decisive, all we will know is peace. Friends, yes, Scripture tells us to fight the good fight of faith. And no, that's one of the ways that we worship the Lord, where we fight to follow him in all areas of life, declaring him to be worthy. But friends, in the end, our hope is not how well we fight. Likewise, it's not like God needs us to fight for him. So like the enemies don't consume him. That's not our hope. Rather, our hope that we see all throughout the scriptures, all throughout Revelation, our hope is that God's the one who fights for us. Friends, that's the hope that we have. That's the hope in this scene, in this passage, in this great final battle. And friend, if God is for us, who could be against us? Keep going. As God himself entered in to fight this last great battle, this last great war, in the verse 10 of the passage, that Satan's time is now fully up. At the conclusion of this last great war, there, there's not going to be another time for Satan to ever be released for a little while to deceive. Because at the end of this great war, text tells us that the devil, the great dragon, the ancient serpent, the great deceiver, will be captured, and he's going to be given an eternal life sentence where he'll be thrown into a lake of fire and sulfur that's going to be his final eternal place of residence as the punishment for all of the evil he unleashed 
was mentioned, the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, chapter 19 tells us, and verse 10 reminds us, it's the same lake of fire and sulfur, it's the eternal place of torment, where the beast and the false prophet were, a place where they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. And by the way, this is another place, at least to me, where it seems like sex is presenting like two different events. Where one event happened in chapter 19, that a different event happened in chapter 19. So chapter 19, the beast, false prophet, thrown into the lake of fire. Then, after this last great battle, Satan joins them, where he also is thrown into this great lake of fire. For for all eternity, the beast, the false prophet, Satan, almost formed like an unholy trinity, where they'll be united together in eternal punishment. It's mentioned the just payment for the evil, heinous war crimes that they've committed. And for us, that's where we're going to stop today. We're stopping, we're leaving off for the rest of Satan's army, waiting for judgment to come their way, which is actually going to be our text next week, which perhaps is one of the most sobering passages in all of the Bible, of a judgment day that's coming for everyone. We'll be judged in many ways by which side of the war we chose to fight on, for or against the Lord Jesus Christ. But now as we begin to close here, just a few thoughts I want to remind us from this passage, and then we'll be done. Just a few things. So first, as I think through this text, this is a reminder that the world is at war. And this is actually really important for us to understand and be mindful of. We live in a world at war. Always at war. And outside of the thousand-year reign that is to come, which our text talks about last week, we'll be at war until this last, final battle in the text. And here, I'm not referring to all the wars that have filled the earth in the modern era or throughout all of human history. But I'm referring to the spiritual war that's being fought. Okay, New Testament tells us this. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. As the spiritual war takes place, Scripture further tells us this battle is being fought on three major fronts. The world, the flesh, the devil. With the world represents worldviews, ideals, philosophies. They're at war at us in ways they're trying to capture our hearts, even though they stand in opposition to the Lord. We also, even in our converted life, we can war against the flesh, which represents sinful desires that can have such a grip on us that these desires almost become like idols to us. We're putting more hope in our sinful desires like having them fulfilled, then we actually are hoping in the Lord. Satan, we see throughout Scripture, is the great deceiver, the great accuser, the one who comes pretending to be an angel of light. Friends, this morning, as we see our text, in this last great war that is going to take place, let us remind you that we do live in a world at war, a spiritual war, which is, again, there's going to be ongoing spiritual battles that will continue to take place until this final battle. Okay, so with that in mind, just a few other things just on this note here. So first, we, we all have to decide which side of the war we're on. Okay, this is something I mentioned a few times in the sermon. You, you can't be neutral here. We, we all are on a side. Scripture tells us actually by birth, by choice, we actually start out on Satan's side, warring against Christ. The Testament further tells this. It says, You are dead in your trespasses and sins. And whence you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince, the power of the air. The spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience, of whom we once all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. Remember, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And friends, we will continue to be at enmity towards the Lord until we turn from our sin in ways we're trusting in Jesus Christ, where we're bowing the knee to Jesus, where we're putting our faith, our trust in Jesus Christ in his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead for the forgiveness of our sin. We're going to talk about more in just a bit. But one last time. Friends, we all are involved in this war. It's just what side we are on. Second, as we think about us being at war, we must fight this war by being faithful to the weapons God has given to us. And it's actually one of the ways that we trust him, where we worship him, is by trusting the good word he has given to us. And his word tells us this, about this spiritual war that we're in. It's also in the New Testament. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. It says, put on the whole armor of God. They'll be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against cosmic powers in the present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. They'll be able to stand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying in all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to the end, keep alert, with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints. Friends, this really is part of fighting the good fight of faith that I mentioned briefly. It's fighting by putting on the armor of God that he's given to us. We have to trust him in ways that we listen and obey to what he's telling us about this fight. Third, friends, we must fight this war that we're in by living in community. This is actually one of the other things that God instructs us in his word. It's actually one of the more important ways that we trust him. That we do so when we're living in community. That's how, that is how God has designed us to live. That's how he has designed us to fight this fight. By living in relationship and community with others. The New Testament, particularly those within the local church. This is one of the reasons why we talk so often as a church about the importance to connect with one another. We don't engage in this battle in isolation we engage together, particularly as a local church, together, where we serve one another, where we care for one another, where we're actively seeking to build each other up in the Lord. Fourth, because of this reality that we're at war, friends, we must fight the war by seeing the end result, which is the text today. The end result of God being the victor. Friends, we, we cannot lose sight of this. In the end, God will make all things right. In the end, he will prove that greater is he who is in his people than he who is in the world. 
in the end, we must see that our faith, our trust in the Lord is never in vain. Friends, we know this. Even if we've never been on the front lines of like an actual war, like we, we know war is weary. War can take everything out of a soldier. You know, sure, maybe when a soldier first enlists, you know, maybe he has like bright eyes, there's some zeal, some excitement, some anticipation that comes with the fight. But then the longer any soldier is at war, at battle, the more sobering and discouraging the effects of the war can have on them, leaving the soldier more and more weary. And friend, that's true even in the spiritual war that we're in. For sure, maybe when we first come to faith in Jesus, we feel such zeal, such excitement, such hope. But then as the battle wages on, we find ourselves on different front lines of the battle. We know that that same zeal that we once had can quickly dissipate. Where all we can start to feel is weariness that comes from doing good. So friends, because of the reality of weariness that comes with war, we have to fight by continuing to remember how this war ends. Victory in the Lord. The Lord, he is the one who's on the winning side. This actually leads to the second thing I wanted to mention before I close this time for us. Friends, take heart. God fights for his people. This is how we know that we're on the winning side. It's because God himself fights for his people. See, and this is the reality of the entire scriptures. All throughout the scriptures, God himself entering in to fight for his people. You know, for those of us who were uh, through the first Samuel study last year, we worked through that. But that's something we saw multiple times. God entering in to fight for his people. It's been true. This is also one of the themes of Revelation. God entering in to fight for his people. And this really is the story of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, where God came to his people in such a way that he entered in, in such a way that through the eternal Son, the second member of the Blessed Trinity, God became one of us to enter in to fight and defeat our sin, which he did on the cross, where Jesus stood in our place. That's how in he was in. He stood in our place to take on the punishment of our sin, to die, only to rise again on the third day to prove that he is the victor over sin, death, and the devil. Listen, friends. Our sin that has so surrounded us, listen, there's no way we could ever defeat it or escape it on our own. We can't fight this battle on our own of sin. But the good news is that Jesus Christ entered in the fight for us. And through the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Blessed Trinity, he now dwells in the hearts of his people where God continues to be in the fight for us. And God promises, we see in our text, that he will be in the fight for us all the way to this final war. Yes, friends. This fight we're in, this fight of faith, it can be weary. It can be discouraging. At times it might feel we're being overcome in ways that we're going to be defeated. But this morning, please take heart. God, for his people, he doesn't leave us. He doesn't forsake us in the fight. 
Rather, they keep saying it. He fights for his people all the way to the end until he secures the eternal victory. Which is the last thing I want to mention here before I close this in prayer. Friends, take heart. God will bring about peace. So there's an early church father named Augustine, I'm sure some of you are familiar with. So he's famous for a number of reasons, one of which is the thoughts referred to of a just war theory. So I'm not going to get into all the ins and outs of a just war theory, but the basic argument is that at times, the morally correct, right thing to do is actually to engage in war, to fight against those who are causing like, grave injustice, those who are inflicting evil on others. And through that war against injustice, against evil, that's the only way peace can actually come. So war is just, in that sense, is in the end, it can bring about peace. Okay, now, there's a lot more that can be said there, but I do think there's truth to the just war theory. And one of the reasons why is actually our text today, where we see God justly fights against his enemy, his enemy who caused so much harm and destruction through so many heinous, evil acts. God fought the enemy, defeated the enemy, so that peace might come, which is how the story of history will eternally go on forever and ever not with war, that has filled human history since Genesis 3. Rather, how this will continue to go on forever and ever, the story of peace, peace that will fully come in Revelation 21, 22. Eternal, everlasting peace and joy for God's people. The Village Church, may God give us the grace to trust and believe that indeed God fights for his people. And may not only trust and believe that this is true, but may we also long for this eternal peace that he has promised to us to come. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to trust in you. Help us to trust that if you are for us, who could be against us? Lord, thank you for giving us Revelation 20 to help us see that which is to come. That through this great war, you will bring about peace. Lord, please help us just to trust in you as the battle still wages in this life. Help us to trust your word. Lord, please help us to fight together well. And uh, Lord, I pray that for this little church family here, they'd help us just to make much of Jesus. Lord, it is so sweet to trust in him. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.